States are cracking down on physicians and pharmacies in an attempt to curb the nationwide epidemic of opioid abuse. While some measures are improving the situation in hard-hit areas like Florida, patients and physicians say the new laws are also keeping needed medications out of the hands of patients. I am Dr. Jennifer Cottle, host of Everyday Family Medicine on ReachMD, and with me today are Nick Shilligo, American Osteopathic Association Associate Vice President for State Government Affairs, and Mark Bailey, DO, PhD, and Professor at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Nick and Dr. Bailey, welcome to ReachMD. So let's talk about the scope of the problem. I read recently that one out of four Oregon residents received an opioid prescription in the year 2012. You know, that seems high, but is that an isolated case? I would say it's not an isolated case. There are about uh, 2 million individuals that currently are addicted to opioids, almost four times that of heroin. And there are also 260 million opioid prescriptions uh, dispensed every year. That's more than enough for one of every adult in the United States. That's amazing. So, Nick, how are individual states really addressing this issue? Let me ask you that first. What are states doing about it? And are there any particular states that really stand out as success stories? So states are attempting to address this in a number of different ways, increasing CME requirements, mandatory use of prescription drug monitoring programs, uh, who can own and operate a pain clinic, limiting and restricting dispensing of controlled substances out of the physician's office, and then instituting penalties for those that don't follow the rules as written by the states. So, Nick, can you tell us, are there any states that are particular standouts or that have had particular successes in implementing some of these modalities? Sure. There are a couple of states. Kentucky has been very good at looking at this issue. And one of the things I want to point out that Kentucky did was highlighting the need to share data across state lines in terms of using their prescription drug monitoring program and making sure that they're sharing that data with other states that that surround them. The other one I think that has done a really good job is the state of Florida has uh, put together a comprehensive approach at addressing this issue. So they have uh, requirements on who can own and operate a pain clinic, limiting and restricting dispensing out of the physician's office, increased CME requirements. They put forth some pretty big fines that are uh, levied upon physicians that don't follow these regulations, starting at about $10,000 per instance. So in 2011, when this law was put into place, Florida had the biggest problem across the country. Since that law has been implemented, they've seen a 20% drop in prescription drug overdoses in just a few years. So I'd say they've done a fantastic job of looking at this issue. I think one of the things that we're trying to do is recognizing that this is an epidemic and we're trying to figure that out and trying to solve this problem, but also that delicate balance of not restricting patient access to care. So, Dr. Bailey, I'd like to go to you now. If you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about the scope of your practice, you hold a DO, a degree as well as a PhD. But in addition to that, can you also tell us how the state pain medication regulations really affect the practice of medicine? Sure. I practice at University of Alabama at Birmingham. I'm a neurologist. I'm board certified in both neurology and pain. And my practice is almost completely medical pain management. The state regulations in Alabama increased also in 2012. A lot of new ones came into being. And Alabama is moderately restrictive state as far as regulations. Alabama does not specify how many drug screens you have to do per unit of time. Some states do. Some states, almost all states, say that anyone that you're prescribing chronic opioids can't prolong the return appointments to more than 90 days. Prescriptions for controlled substances can only be written for 30 days at the time, and those are state-level 
kind of regulations. How do you think this is affecting, say, your practice or the practice of others? Have you seen problems with being able to get patients the medications you feel they need or do you not feel that way? What's your been your personal experience or those of your colleagues? Access to pain care is a big problem. Right now, a lot of primary care physicians are too frightened to write controlled substances. They see all these regulations. They hear about DEA sweeps through the state and throwing people in jail, and they're just very worried about that, and they are simply saying, I'm not going to write opioids anymore. And so they got to go somewhere else, and that's access is a is a tremendous problem i know at the university we have a long waiting list to get in to see the the specialist there and we frequently have calls for i need to get my patient seen they're in terrible pain that'll be six months is next available what are they going to do in the meanwhile that's a tough question and not one that we really have a good answer for right now. Well, I appreciate you giving your personal experience and some that you've seen and being frank about it because, you know, as we know, opioids in this country and prescribing and proper prescribing, it's been a topic that as physicians we are actually almost always thinking about and certainly talking about for good reason. What advice do you have for doctors that are trying to really respond to new regulations? What's your advice? Dr. Bailey. There are some really good courses being taught. The REMS program is a designed to match the FDA blueprint on opioid prescribing. An excellent program. It's lengthy, but it's being given in lots of different venues. A lot of state associations have the REMS program for extended release long-acting opioids. That's a good place to start. I know at almost every state association meeting, there's some few hours given to responsible opioid prescribing. Those are good ideas. I would say the most important thing, though, is to check with your state's specifics because those vary from state to state and where maybe the state next door, they require one drug screen a year and maybe yours requires three drug screens a year and how important that is in the clinical practice, who knows, but as far as complying with the law, that is important because you certainly do want to, if you're going to be prescribing opioids, you definitely want to know what the regulations are and to stay well within those bounds. Absolutely. I think that's a really great point because the laws are different from state to state. And, you know, Nick, in the beginning, you talked a little bit about the different ways that states are approaching this issue. I just have a question about the prescription drug monitoring programs. I'm curious about your thoughts about them, how well you feel like they're working, maybe if you have any knowledge about how many states are making them a requirement. But I'm just curious about any thoughts you both might have about the prescription drug monitoring programs in particular. Dr. Bailey, did you want to speak first? Almost all the states have one. I think Missouri does not have one right now, but everybody else does, and I'm not sure what the status of the Missouri thing is. But in some states, they are required. In my state, you've got to prove that you have a login and password to the prescription database to renew your uh, controlled substance license every year, so it's required. It's a great thing. I mean, this is a this is a gift to pain doctors or anybody that's that's writing pain medicines. The limitations are uh, across state boundaries, and that's been a problem. There are several organizations that have sought to interconnect the state prescribing databases. About half of them now are interconnected, and that's really very valuable because even if you don't live close to a state line 
your patients could be coming from across the state line. And Alabama is not a part of that program at this point. And if someone comes over from Georgia, Mississippi, Florida, I don't know what they've been prescribed or I have no way of following up on that. The prescription drug database is a, is a tremendous tool. And in some places, it's required that you check the prescription database for prescribing of opioids. Again, that's a state-to-state difference. Nick, did you have any comments about the databases and your thoughts or feelings about them? I think Dr. Bailey's right. I mean, the limitation is that sharing data across state lines. You have certainly a number of areas where patients can travel across state borders to get around some of the laws and some of the tools that clinicians are using to try and identify potential episodes of misuse and diversion. And so the more states that we can get on board with sharing that data, I think that will go a long way in addressing the problem. Let's talk a little bit about resources for practitioners to really appropriately practice medicine and specifically appropriately prescribe pain medications. Dr. Bailey, you mentioned the REMS program. Nick, you talked about some of the ways that the states are trying to help. Jointly, together, what do you feel are some good resources for us to make sure that we're doing the right thing and that we're treating pain properly and not over-treating, not under-treating? Where do we go? Obviously a tough question and a big question. Resources all the pain groups, Academy of Pain Medicine, all those kinds of places have websites that have got lots of information that's available, and you want to be sure to avail yourself of it because having a patient agreement for medications is important. Identifying opioid risk for every patient is definitely a must-do, and what tool you use to assess risk is there's a lot of them, and they're all out there available. The prescription database is a marvelous tool, and and you really need to be using that. And and like I said, in some places, it's mandated. In addition to that, the American Osteopathic Association has also been working closely with a number of other provider groups and retail pharmacy chains to develop a document that identifies some red flags that can help address some of these issues, help physicians in their office start to look a little bit more closely when they see these red flags pop up, and also helping pharmacists understand when a patient comes in with a prescription what to look for. As these red flags build, then it's probably necessary to stop and take a second look a little bit more closely at this patient and determine if dispensing is appropriate at that time. And so, you know, that's a great tool and resource that can be found on our website. Led right into my next question, which is sort of this interdisciplinary team approach to how we approach pain management with our patients. And interdisciplinary cooperation is is a very important element, really, in combating opioid abuse. You mentioned some of the pharmacy resources, et cetera. Is there anything else that we need to know about and really what's being done to find boundaries? Yeah, Nick mentioned the stakeholders group of physicians and pharmacists and industry and DEA all sitting down around the table to try to identify what are appropriate actions to be taken. It has come to the attention of the American Osteopathic Association that there were some prescriptions that were written appropriately with all the I's dotted and T's crossed, but they weren't being filled by the pharmacist. The pharmacists were requiring information, diagnosis codes, date of last office visit, MRI results, and the physicians were upset because the patient very often does without their pain medicine, and if you do without that for very long, you withdraw, and so that's an issue. The problem stems back to a thing that most physicians are not aware of, is that the pharmacist is on the hook. If you write a bad prescription, you know, a prescription for 
a whole lot of opioids on one script and the patient takes it out of state to fill it and you're a dermatologist in the rural parts of Alabama, that's probably not a good script. And I think any pharmacist could tell that. But if the pharmacist filled it and the doc got dinged for writing a bad script, the pharmacist gets dinged for filling the bad script. That example is ludicrous, but how does the pharmacist know? It's the middle of the night, he's in a Walgreens in Florida, he's got a script from somebody somewhere else, he's got no way of checking on it, and he's on the hook. So pharmacists are getting quite edgy about filling those prescriptions, and I certainly understand that. That's one thing that we're trying to do. I'm working more closely myself with the physician end of red flags and identifiers and what do you do when that the pharmacy organizations are also going to try to develop guidelines. So they'll have some guidelines to follow. So if the patient comes in from out of state wanting to fill a script for somebody else and comes in with a group of people with several scripts each for highly coveted street medications, you know, those kinds of red flag behaviors that, that we have identified and have okayed by all the stakeholder parent organizations, so we're, we're hoping to develop some guidelines to give the pharmacists and to give the doc, the prescribing physician and the pharmacist, just some set of standards to say that as long as I stay within these bounds, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do and to be more comfortable about filling those prescriptions and not needing to talk to the physician on the phone face-to-face -face or voice-to-voice which is kind of silly if the physician is a bad doc in rural Alabama writing bad scripts and the pharmacist calls him up and says hey doc is it okay to fill this script well what's he going to say he's going to say sure fill the script I mean that that doesn't guarantee that it's a good script or not so guidelines will be important for both physicians and pharmacists. So Nick, we talked a little bit actually in the beginning of the interview, you talked about some of the resources that are available and some of the organizations and initiatives that exist to really help the situation of proper opioid prescribing and misuse and abuse. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and maybe some work that you are doing or involved with or with the American Osteopathic Association? As part of this interprofessional dialogue that we're having to help address this issue, we've been working, as I mentioned, with the National Association of boards of pharmacy, the DEA, several other physician groups, and then creating that red flag document that Dr. Bailey and I both talked about. The next step that we're going to be working on is developing some interprofessional education modules to both address the scope of practice concerns that physicians have when pharmacists are calling asking for imaging or treatment plans and things like that, but also helping physicians understand the corresponding responsibility requirement that pharmacists have. So what Dr. Bailey talked about in terms of being on the hook if they fill a bad script knowingly. And so they are required by federal law to justify and validate every single prescription that they fill. And so, you know, because of that, they want to go the extra step to make sure that they're valid prescriptions or else their license is on the line just as the license of the physician would be on the line if they're writing bad prescriptions. You know, as we close today, I really want to kind of go back to this relationship that physicians may have with the pharmacist and then the relationship with the patient and how we all are interrelated. What is it that you want physicians and pharmacists actually out there to know as it comes to opioid prescribing? I would say one of the main messages is for physicians to realize that pharmacists are required by law to determine each controlled substance prescription is written in the usual course of medical practice for a legitimate medical purpose. 
And that's really hard for a pharmacist to know, are those conditions being met? The physicians need to understand. So when the pharmacists start asking for diagnosis codes, for radiology reports, which certainly the AMA House of Delegates, there was a, a big uproar and the physicians were complaining that pharmacists were attempting to practice medicine beyond their scope of practice, that what does a pharmacist need to know diagnosis codes for? The physicians just really need to realize that we must team with the pharmacists and we've got to cooperate with them and develop joint guidelines on how to handle this problem. Wonderful. Well, thank you both so much, Dr. Bailey and Nick, for, for coming and speaking about this really important issue. I am your host, Dr. Jennifer Caudill, and you've been listening to Everyday Family Medicine on ReachMD. To download this podcast and others in the series, please visit us at reachmd.com slash everydayfamilymedicine. And we also encourage you to like, share, and comment on this podcast. Thank you for listening.